Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our, not head coach, our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And a very special guest, uh, Ray Maker from DCRayMaker.com. How's it going? It's going good. It's nice. We are not in America right now. Uh, we are in Eurobike and we are in your RV. We are. Uh, outside of the, the, the whole show. And so if you hear kind of a noise going on, it's raining really hard on our RV roof. So yeah. We're in Germany, yes. by the way. Ray, have you found any vegetables other than potatoes here? <laughs> no, there's nothing other than brown vegetables. Brown vegetables, brown that vegetables, are vegetables and brown meat. It's amazing. The endurance diet is not really utilized no. here. Uh, I went to a grocery store. They didn't have spinach or kale. No, I, I found some raspberries and blueberries, and that's all I've been living on is raspberries, blueberries, and brown things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good apples here though. Yeah. Very, Very good, good apples. Yeah, oh, yeah. amazingly on good. On to tech. So we are going to, so this is not going to be a normal episode. Uh, we get tons of questions all the time about like the tech that like is coming out or the tech that we use and recommend that sort of stuff. And we can kind of speak on the stuff that we use, but there are plenty of things that we don't use like directly, you know? So you're the authority on all these things. And if people don't know, first of all, dcrainmaker.com. Honestly, if you ever want any device that probably you'd use with Trainer Road, there's an amazing review on it, probably. And on it's there. a manual. <laughs> yeah. I think your manuals are better than other manuals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. It's basically just a manual. It's all it comes down to. An unknown, uh, I won't talk about a company, but I had a question for them, and they said, oh, you go to DC Remakers article to figure out how to do that. They didn't have a way to do it. They didn't have they it. They pointed to you. <laughs> they pointed to you, yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard that a lot. People actually print it out sometimes in like running shops. People have printed out full-on reviews. Like the hundred, and, it's like 160 pages. Stapled it and put it like next to devices. That's crazy. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we're gonna talk about some stuff, but first off, we're we're gonna get into trainers and power meters and like other sensors and head units that stuff. But first, aero sensors. So uh, we kind of a, so I think all three of us probably expected to see aero sensors come out by now. Oh, but we should it, talk about what they are. Yeah. First. What is an aero sensor? Yeah. So an aero sensor is a way that allows you to measure your drag out in the road. And so obviously aero sensors have been around in various industries for a long time, but getting into the cycling realm is interesting uh, because while you can certainly go to a wind tunnel or go to um, a velodrome and go around and around and get your aerodynamic information there, a lot of that doesn't really carry out to the road very well. It doesn't carry out to racing very well. So if you're four hours deep into an Ironman, what does your position look like compared to what it should have been six months prior in a wind tunnel, right? It's, you mean I don't hold perfect position the whole time? No, it's it's <laughs> it's nuts. Like you talk to some of the, the wind tunnel guys and they, especially the coaches, right? And they look at photos, like typical race day photos like you and I get of their athletes, you know, the day later. And they're like, what on earth happened out there? Where is that <laughs> position we worked on? Um, yeah. And you just forget. And so the whole idea of aero sensors is to put it on your bike and always have a number you can you can chase and a number that you can follow so that as you're going through that race or that training day you're keeping that same position not just hour after hour but day after day month after month and even year after year uh, and so there's been a last two years just a lot of kind of a lot of focus on that um, products but not necessarily getting those products into the marketplace but like announcements and whatnot and from you know some big name companies so like Garmin for example acquired Alpha Mantis um, which did a lot of aero stuff and uh Let's see, what's it? Argon 18 um, had a Notio as well, and they've kind of spun that off and done some stuff there, and then other players in the industry. So lots not there. There's probably like eight different companies out there that are doing aero sensors, and I think we hoped by this year, like after last year, was so much news about it, and then essentially nothing's happened over <laughs> the last year. Uh, it's been it's been kind of a, a sad development there, I guess. How, how do they, uh, well, so they're like a puck usually, right, or something like that? 
Yep. And then how do they work? Like, what do you, what data do you see? Yeah, so the way it usually works is they go on the front of the bike, usually as far forward as you can get. And that's kind of some of the challenge with the sensors that you have to get outside of uh, your aerodynamic envelope effectively to, you know, things that you are impacting uh, to measure what your drag looks like. And so usually it's a little a pod or a puck or something with a small uh, stick off the front, a pitot tube ideally. Uh, and then that transmits to typically a Garmin or some other head unit, uh, but basically just Garmin today. And that shows you your CDA value in most cases. So it's a value that, uh, you know, typically like for a, a well-refined athlete, if you will, um, would be like 0.2 to 0.28 um, is kind of the average, I guess you could say, for a good, a good you know, front of the pack age grouper. If you were pro, you're under 0.2. If you're not so pro, you're above that. And it's so... That's your, your, this number that you're chasing. It's kind of like power. And these aerodynamic sensors do require a power meter there. Uh, and they require a lot of usually calibration and configuration and perfection. And that's, that's where most of this has gone kind of wrong from the industry standpoint because it's so difficult to get the consumer to understand this. And, uh, and as you guys have known, you talked about in the past, like changes from an aerodynamic standpoint is minuscule. It's the whole idea of like shrugging your shoulders is the same aerodynamic benefit of the fastest, you know, helmet you can buy or not, yeah. so like or wheels, yeah, thousand yeah, yeah. dollar wheels, compared to just literally shrugging your shoulders, right? Or moving your, you know, the, your thumbs a third of a centimeter on your bars, like that's that's the difference. And so trying to explain to the average consumer like what you should even do, like if you take just someone that's maybe a cyclist but not like a person that understands, you know, racing or whatnot, like just say your parents that. And you put them on a bike and you say, make yourself faster using the sensor. Even if they understood the concept of, you know, a lower number is better and a higher number is worse, they'd have no idea all the wonky things that a typical like aero session would do with one of the companies. So how do you, how do you explain to people? How do you drive people to, to know what to do so they can actually make those changes is really, really challenging. Did I see one that had like watts lost to drag? Yep. Yes. Like, so that, that, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, so a lot of them had different kind of variations on beyond just the CDA value because CDA value is kind of a little geeky, which is great. But like, how can you quantify exactly watts lost to drag? And time? I'm sorry. And if you're climbing in your CD, who cares about your CDA value if you're going eight miles per hour? Right. It's all it's all challenging stuff. So that's that's been I think the biggest struggle point for most of the industry, aside from accuracy. There's two big pieces that are really holding everyone back. One is accuracy and setup and configuration. Like it's one thing. And I spend a lot of time with these companies, a lot of time with really smart aero people out there like Robert Chung and Tom Linnell, people that are at the grandfathers of aero in our industry. And, you know, we, we spent some time down the Specialized Wind Tunnel working on some of this stuff and trying to figure out how to even just test devices. The whole concept of even just validating how to test these devices is still up in the air. Like, you think about all the other things in cycling that we know and understand. Like, we know how to test power meters. We know how to test trainers and all that kind of stuff for accuracy. We don't actually know how to test aero sensors in a way that's repeatable and functional. We spent an entire day, and at the end of the day, we had hoped that we'd like be able to test a couple aero sensors and validate they were good or not, essentially. Mm -hmm. And all we end up with was a whiteboard of ways you could screw up the testing. Um, <laughs> like that's just it's it's so. I mean, imagine like all those things were from a body of people that are, you know, take myself out of it. Really, really smart people, like the smartest people on this planet when it comes to aero sensors. And we end up with just a list of ways these people, that, that group of us, could screw it up, um, let alone the average the average customer. Is it like, I mean, one aspect of this, I've just done things like the Chung method outside, yep. and I've done a couple other different like field tests mm -hmm. without sensors or anything, just a power meter and a speed sensor. 
And I've found that uh, I underestimated how big of an impact very small changes in like wind and those sort of things uh, would affect because it was crazy. Like it was like a huge difference in drag and I didn't perceive a big change in the wind, but apparently it was big enough. Would these sensors be able to actually like kind of sort through those weeds and still give you a reliable metric? Or is that what's holding them up? Like the the variable conditions we have? In theory, yes. In practice, that's part of the uh, the challenge there is to how to like make sure you're pulling that data out of that so that you are kind of effectively zero offsetting that, that yeah. whole data set. And so some of them are, are better at it. I think, you know, if we look at the entire field right now, the one that's clearly the two companies out there that actually have products in market that consumers can buy and use today are uh, Notio or Notio, depending on how you pronounce it, and uh, Aeropod from uh, the company that previously did PowerPod. And they both have products in market today that can give people CDA values, put it on your Garmin, you can download it, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the Notio setup is definitely a little more advanced in terms of the way they enumerate the information. But on the flip side, I think the Aeropod PowerPod folks have way more data and depth in the industry um, longer term because their product for the last decade has been built on aerodynamics. And so while you know lots of people looked at some of their PowerPod and other products maybe from a power meter standpoint and said, ah, that doesn't really fit my, my needs, from an aero standpoint, there's no company in this space that has as much experience with aerodynamics as Aeropod does. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out how to make these products, again, usable for the average consumer. So you, on your reviews, like you, you mentioned this, but how you test power meters and stuff and trainers, mm-hmm. how would you go about testing an aero? <laughs> like it just gives you a number. What do you do? That's what we were trying to figure out last last fall with, with Specialized and trying to figure out how to actually establish a protocol for anyone to test it, whether it's me or anyone else, um, so that when people start reviewing these. And I would say, honestly, we don't really have that yet. I think at this point, we've got some ideas on what we can do there and some tests. The challenge is some of the tests are really complicated to execute. And uh, and it's just, I'm not sure it's something that is super viable long-term to be able to figure out how to make those tests repeatable for everyone. But uh, it's something we're definitely digging into. It's almost like you want precision. So you want, kind of like you do with power meters. If I get three on my bike and they all say the same number and then a fourth one mm-hmm. says something crazy, yep. it's probably the fourth one that's wrong. Yeah. Right. I, can we, can we yeah. jump to, I want to know how you test. Um, actually, no, Jonathan, you have a sheet. Yeah, yeah. You take it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to say is just like expressing like how I would see using this if it worked well, mm-hmm. let's just throw away everything that we just talked about. Well, let's yep. just assume these work really well. Um, but if they did, how cool would that be to be in a time trial and have like your power, your elapsed time and your drag and like oh, a breakaway. Oh, a breakaway, anything like it would. So, and I'm really just trying to think of like how this is practically applicable to those of us that want to get faster, all that stuff. It would be seriously helpful. Like it, it would be, be, and it would be really cool to play around with, like to kind of be like shrug shoulders, see it drop, you know, like it'd be great. That's exactly it. And, and, and to be fair to these companies, like I think you can use these products today and get faster with them, uh, with these two products in particular. I have no question about that. I think we can debate very validly whether or not the absolute precision of those products is accurate. But I think it's very easy to see that on a relatively stable day um, that you can make changes and see what's good and bad and, and go from there. And, you know, to how small a change you can make that'll capture is, again, debatable. But I think for a lot of things, you can make those changes. And as you said, like if you typical look at a typical endurance athlete, a typical Ironman athlete that's maybe out there and doing a five hour training ride in aero position. Right. And they're just yeah. they're just yeah. doing five hours for the, yeah. the, their day they can segment that off and go like, okay, I'm going to spend 20 minutes in this position. I'm going to spend 20 minutes in this position and then go back to the previous one. And 
I mean, you got five hours to do nothing, so you might as well do something. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And so yeah. <laughs> those are things that you could do. And and I think that's where it gets really, really powerful. Then then do that weekend after weekend, and your entire build process and everything, and sit there and go, now I've got some patterns. Now I figure this out. Uh, yeah. But that's where I think the companies from an app standpoint or from integration with head unit standpoint have to almost prompt you. Like you think about, you know, doing a, an outside workout, a structure work outside where you've got prompts for that workout, what zones to be in. You need like these apps to be able to say on your head unit, okay, now you're going to do this and see what happens and record the data. And then at the end of that, say, oh, okay, that was less effective or more effective or whatever the case may be. Uh, the other side of things. So Quark is in particular seems to be like the, the internet of things that's saying, and I'm doing mm -hmm. air quotes, no one can see it right now, but the I internet of things, <laughs> thanks Nate, <laughs> they're, they're bringing it to the bike. Like, and what I mean by that is they have the shock whiz on the suspension yep. side for mountain bikes. Then they have the tire whiz, which is like the tire pressure monitor and it can feed that information wirelessly to your head unit. Uh, and I, the folks at Quark are very smart. Um, and I'm sure they're coming up with so many different ways to connect everything on the bike, but uh, is there anything else like that that we've missed that's come out here at Eurobike, like another thing from Quark or some sort of wireless sensor that's coming out for the bikes that's interesting? I don't think here this year. I think in the past we've seen a lot of attention to tire sensors, and I'm sure that you know, some of them may have advanced a bit more on, on those prototypes. And as you mentioned, Quark has one that's on the bike that's precariously sitting over the top of your head right now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's true. It's, it's all sorts of sensor data, and I think some of that's really fascinating, uh, especially if you trend for a longer time period. Like, you know, I've had it on my my road bike now for a year so to start to, to understand like tire pressure loss over time and stuff is, is fascinating not as much maybe for a roadie as it would be for someone who's off-road yeah um, I think it's all kind of goes back to how do you how do you capture that data long term and how do you analyze that data long term like you know how do you compare different tire pressures and speeds and trains and start to actually pull it together where Maybe if you're super geeky like the three of us, you might sit down and do that like <laughs> yep. with a, a horrifically-looking Excel spreadsheet. But how does the average consumer take all that data in and make yeah. sense of it all? Yeah, it's. I, I would find it really helpful. And actually, in, this is like another use case thing. I'm going to be switching and putting like tire inserts in my tires on my mountain bike instead of mm -hmm. just running normal air and sealant. And there's like a, you're reducing the effective volume of your tire like a ton. So everything that you know about pressure settings beforehand kind of goes out. Instead, you have to chase a feel, and that can be really hard for people. And I feel like that that could be really helpful using the tire sensor, like that that sort of a thing with that. So it'll be interesting to see what else they come up with. If it's going to be like sensors on the bars, and then they're going to figure out how much strain we have that way, and it's going to be like a different TSS metric. Ooh, awesome. I want a brake. Yeah, a brake sensor. It's yeah. been talked about for a long time. Brake parameters. It's, yeah. it's something that I, I think somebody has one. I've seen it like on Pink Bike. It doesn't exactly look what I would call refined, but yeah, yeah. it's been every year. I I have not run into something yet, but usually when I run into people at Eurobike or brake sensors, it's like Thursday afternoon, Friday. So I think yeah. we still got some time for this. <laughs> um, it's usually like in the sketchiest part, of possible part of the, uh, <laughs> the convention. <entire> halls. <laughs> um, it, the brake sensors is a tough one though because of liability reasons. Yeah, um, don't so alter the brake. It's like the whole Strava, you know, lawsuit thing of, of yesteryear, right? Where you know, basically Strava was having people do downhill segments way back in the beginning, and you know, someone got hurt or killed or whatever on that. And so, not like whatever in a bad way, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, a, totally. In a technical yep, way yep. here. Um, and so, big lawsuits around that because you're effectively advocating unsafe behavior. And so, if you look at a brake power meter. You're effectively advocating unsafe behavior. Don't break. Break go less. Break <laughs> less. Like, yeah. So I think that's something that would probably be a niche thing yeah. because while I suspect companies like Garmin and otherwise others could easily create that and market that and sell that, 
I don't think they want that. It's not worth the risk from a lawsuit standpoint for that. Totally makes sense. Um, let's get into on the power meter side and, and like your process of how you test power meters for accuracy. Because that's like the biggest thing that we yeah. see from a lot of people. You know, that that's like the, the thing they're wondering is mine accurate, that sort of thing. So how mm-hmm. do you figure that out? Because you test every power meter. Yep. So I'm I'm looking at stuff indoors and outdoors as kind of the, the, the whole picture of things. I'm looking across different... Uh, scenarios, whether it be outdoors on things like cobblestones or uh, off-road or on-road. Um, I'm looking at everything from different cadence ranges to, uh, you know, different trainers. Like I've seen power meters that fail indoors on certain trainers, but not outdoors and vice versa. So like, weird, right? like crazy <laughs> stuff. So I've got kind of a, a broad set of things. And uh, for folks that are curious, I actually wrote down my entire testing methodology and how you can test your own gear. And also, more importantly, how you can troubleshoot your gear. So whether or not cool. it's like trainers or power meters, if you're like something not right here, how to kind of walk through it and understand what's normal um, differences in accuracy, right? Because if you have a trainer, like a kicker and a, a power meter, there will be differences between those two because of different points in the drivetrain. So losses occur between the crank arm all the way down the drivetrain to the, the trainer. So in theory, they should be different. Um, now, in, in theory, again, you should have that crank set or whatever be higher value than your kicker. If your kicker is higher than your uh, crank set or pedal power meters or whatever it is, then something is wrong, right? So you got to kind of like figure out where those are. Uh, so in my case, I typically have between three and four power meters on the bike at a time. Uh, and so I introduce kind of a new one, it's like adding new fish to an aquarium or something. Big day. Never change two things at once, like all this kind of stuff. Um, so introducing something, I'm usually starting off with like a trusted base. And I've, yeah. I mean, I've got 10 years of data where I've got every single ride has four power meters. So I kind of know when someone's misbehaving and I, I kind of know a little bit of that by feel, by looking at data. Uh, and there are ways that you can do, you know, validation of power meters and trainers as well based on uh, weights and calibrated weights. And that, that has its purpose. But today's power meters are far more complex than that. And sure, so today's sure. power meters can't be validated by just simply hanging a weight anymore. Because when things go wrong in today's power meters, it's due to things like uh, temperature compensation failures or cadence failures based on accelerometer um, or build materials like with the recent Shimano issues with the um, 8000 series and above, like that kind of stuff where that's the, all those things wouldn't have been seen in a typical hanging the weight off a crank arm test. Um, so it's much, more dif- much, much more difficult to test a power meter today than it would have been in years past. I actually had that happen this year at Tahoe Trail 100. Uh, like it must have been a temperature thing, but my power meter dropped. I was like impressed because I was going up very steep climbs and I was doing like 120 watts. And I was like, <laughs> I'm breaking wow. physics right yeah. now. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, okay. So on power meters, uh, we thought that there was going to be a bunch, or I, at least I personally thought that we'd see a lot of power meter based. Pedal. Pe- or, that there we go, pedal based power meters. Uh, we've seen like a disappearance of hub based power meters effectively, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it still exists. But uh, why haven't we seen the exodus to pedal, do you think? I think partly because of pedal preference. Um, I think people, some people are just have their pedal preference. And, you know, like if you're on speed play, then you're, you're out of luck today. Um, and I think partly because there's been some rough starts with different power pedal-based power meters in the past. So if we look back to some of the, the earlier entrants into the pedal-based power meter realm, you had uh, basically Polar and Look um, for a while together. And their solution was kind of cumbersome, the way you had install it and really prone to error, and they were limited in protocols at the time, being their own protocol, that's it. Um, we eventually saw that kind of advance to both Garmin and PowerTap. Uh, about the same time, and at the time, PowerTap's pedal offering was actually pretty stable and pretty good. Had some rough, like, couple first months that I think, you know, certain reviews out there may have 
maybe misunderstood how to use the technology or whatever. And so I think that's actually contributed pretty significantly um, to why some of those got off to a rougher start and people's opinions established a certain way, uh, you know, years ago. Mm -hmm. And then in the case of Garmin having this multi-pod design, people thought like you would, you know, clip the pods on the, on the churn and you certainly yeah. could. The, those days are mostly gone, right? Those days are, things are pretty stable across the board. You've established uh, effectively Garmin, Favera with Rostioma pedals are, are super, super stable and, and well-liked. Uh, PowerTap with their uh, P2 pedals, of course, now they're, they're sold off to Quark, uh, but it sounds like Quark wants to continue that. Hmm. And then we have SRM with, with their their pedals. Um, but yeah, we won't talk about those pedals. Got it. So, Got it. <laughs> <laughs> though today your bike or yesterday, whatever they announced, uh, new mountain bike pedals. Um, oh, cool. So I was that was going to be my next question is why haven't we seen this go to mountain biking yet? And if it was maybe just because lower demand or if there was actually a problem that was complex with mountain biking. The main problem is uh, mountain biking beats the crap out of pedals. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that's the challenge. And, and, pe and companies, all these companies have been looking at it and to how you create something that um, is effectively a super fragile mechanical thing at the point it's going to get beat constantly. Uh, and so SRM has announced their power pedal based power meter. Um, it's under a thousand euro, a thousand bucks, thousand euros, which is astounding actually for SRM. Like, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, one of the challenges I had with their SRM exact pedals that came out a little over a year ago, aside from being horribly inaccurate and super complex to install and like $2,000, um, I guess that, those were that the it? three things. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah. So aside from being inaccurate, expensive, and clunky, um, yeah, so they that was partnership with Look. Um, in this case, yeah. for their pedal-based uh, mountain bike power meter, they've actually gone away from that partnership with Look. They're huh. saying they're doing it totally in-house, totally internal. Um, wow. And I'm optimistic. I All like the challenges they had with the existing um, Look partnership-based uh, exact pedal are gone, so they no longer require a funky calibration routine. It's just simply twist on and done. Um, cool. So I'm looking forward to testing those. Uh, I think that'll be that could be sort of a good turning point for the company. I think obviously, as anyone you know that follows the power meter industry has known, they've sort of gone away from being relevant in the in the industry. Not just because of a pricing standpoint, but even a technology standpoint. Like they didn't have temperature yeah. compensation, which you know if you look at someone who's climbing, like you guys were talking about, maybe going for a climb or a ride this weekend where you're going to be climbing for potentially hours at a time um, into potentially very cold terrain. Uh, that's a huge shift in a power meter that without temperature compensation, by the time you got to the top of that climb, you'd be power be way off, way, way yeah. off. And yeah. you know, a traditional SRM power meter, if you did not stop on that climb, like you would in a race, wouldn't actually be accurate at the top. And so that's something that, you know, by their own admission, when I talked to their founder and CEO last year about it, he totally admitted that. He said, yeah, it's something that they got to bring temperature compensation to the rest of their crank set, and they've been working on doing that uh, so that they are caught up with the rest of the industry. Hmm. Price cool. was always a challenge, and so if they can make an accurate uh, mountain bike power meter at sub $1,000 for pedals, that could be super fascinating. I look forward to that review. That'll be a good one. Yep. Uh, so let's go through some some archetypes, so to speak, and what you would recommend in terms of like uh, some 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 of the equipment Product, pieces. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, <clears throat> uh, first things first. Let's just cover trainers because I think it's kind of a general recommendation, yep. unless you have like for a time trialist or mountain bike or something different. But what's your general like the trainers that you hear the best feedback or from your experience the best feedback on? Which would you recommend to somebody? You can break it down on price or just give me one, whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, I think we gotta go probably by price as the, the, yeah. the points there. And in my mind, pricing has roughly gone into like two and a half groups. You know, it used to be like three groups of pricing where you had like the sub $500 trainers, you had the you know, five to seven hundred dollar trainers, and you had the thousand dollar plus. But I think these days it's kind of settled into you have a handful of trainers at like five ninety nine, basically. 
and you have a whole boatload of trainers at $7.99 to $8.99, and you have a small pile of trainers above $1,100 roughly. Uh, so starting at the top end, just because it's mentally easier to, to do that, um, <laughs> you've got essentially like the Tax Neo uh, 2, Neo 2T that just came out here. You've got the uh, kicker, uh, and then slightly below that in price, you have the hammer. And to me, all three of those trainers, uh, the Neo 2T that was just announced has some, I think, early teething pains that they may be already resolved by the time this podcast publishes. But um, initially, right now, just call it the Neo 2 as that, that bucket there. All three of those trainers, I'd have no problem using these days. Uh, I think they're very strong. They're, they're really good trainers. Um, I personally tend to use the, the Tax Neo, um, but that's just me. Like, I'm also totally happy if someone gives me a kicker. It doesn't I'm I'm good with either one. Like, right. Yeah, we've we've noticed. Yeah, yeah. And I, I Chad and I use a hammer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say like um to your point like on a hammer, I know like I would say from an erg mode standpoint, I think right now the hammer, the H three in particular, is delivering the best erg mode responsiveness of all the trainers. And uh it's something I remember, you know, you, Nate, you mentioning to me, I think like a year or two ago when I was visiting you guys and you're like, Ah, oh, I've got the hammer eye office and I use it and I love it. The erg mode responsiveness is there and it's so true. Like when I was just wrapping up the Hammer Three testing, um, like the the way it nails those intervals and in, in Train Road in particular is just astoundingly accurate compared to others. And when I when I look at that kind of stuff, I'm looking at how a how quickly it responds, and then two um, how perfectly it nails that upper point. So like for my testing, I do thirty by thirties um, using Train Road in particular for doing all of my responsiveness erg mode testing. And so I'm looking for how many seconds does it take to make that change, and then when it hits that upper number, so I usually go from like 150 to roughly 405 to 450 watts. I want it to hit, let's say, 405 watts. If it's going to like 470 for the first second or two, that's a whole different workout. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sucks. Right. If you have if you have 15 of those intervals, it's going to be very hard to do 15 of those. Yeah. You know exactly when it's overcommitting for those first three seconds. So I'm looking at that piece there, uh, and it's funny. Like the Neo 2T actually brought up an interesting issue. One of the things I've talked about for years is that you actually don't want a trainer to make that shift in like half a second. Like you don't want to go from 150 watts. It is. It's so true. And with the Neo 2T, it's so powerful now that in some of the builds I was testing, uh, some of the early firmware version, it was making that in like a quarter of a second, a third of a second. (laughs) And literally it was like running into a wall. Like my legs couldn't handle it. No matter how much cadence I brought into that whole thing, like I'd, I'd spin up super fast, you know, and be like, Boom! I just stopped. I'm like, what the hell? I can't. <laughs> yeah. I can't do this. Um, so I think they're they're smoothing this a little more. Because I think in my mind, about 1.5 to two and a half seconds, maybe three seconds or so, is sort of like a sweet spot for how long to make a shift from you know mid hundreds to yeah. that sort of upper range. What about the mid range? So the mid range is is super fascinating. I want to say one more thing about the hammer. Yeah. That's good. Oh, okay. Is that the the flywheel is so heavy, and maybe it's the bearing in there, but it gives more of a road feel. And when it when you like spin down, it takes minutes to like. I can go to the bathroom, come back, and it's still spinning. It's still spinning. Yeah. yeah. So I, where, I was doing something filming, and it was like, what is going on down here? It's still going. <laughs> That's what you want though for inertia. Yeah. To make no. it feel like the road. Yeah, the inertia is the inertia is really good. I think they've nailed it with the price point on that being nine ninety nine. I think they've they've undercut you know Wahoo at twelve hundred bucks and tax at thirteen something or other. I think. Mm-hmm. That's it for a high-end trainer. That's a, a great option. So yeah. down in the mid-range is in my mind right now price point of basically seven ninety-nine to eight ninety-nine. Give or minus a little bit on things on sale, maybe down to seven forty-nine or whatever. And that is mostly the Wahoo Kicker Core, uh, the Tax Flux Two, and then the uh, Elite Suito at seven ninety-nine and Elite Diretto X uh, at eight ninety-nine. And what's fascinating is the the new Suito trainer includes a cassette seven ninety-nine. So that's hmm. Super. Most Sweet. most all these trainers don't. So 
that is a it's designed as a trainer that you it's completely built out of the box there's no assembly whatsoever you take it out of the box you put it in and you just go like that's nice it's it's super it's super well executed um still a little bit early on the firmware for that one uh still waiting for final firmware if they can execute on what they they think they're going to do there and might really test on it that could be i think the trainer to beat the mid-range hmm. um it's not silent like the kicker core which is also in the mid-range uh, and the kicker core is a great trainer tons of inertia there uh, and you've got to remember the kicker core is essentially just a 2017 kicker like the inertia it's the exact yeah. same thing just on a different frame so everyone was really thrilled and happy with the 2017 kicker and now they just put it on a, a frame that's different you're still happy with it like yeah it's, it's an amazing trainer um i have not had great luck with the tax uh flux 2 in particular um, they've made some changes that they haven't super quietly announced your ear bike that it's like a flux 2.1 that they're mm. I'll, I'll probably post about in the next few days that resolve some of the issues but for my issue in particular applicable to especially this podcast is that uh erg mode on a flux 2 is super inaccurate um so mm. it's like plus or minus 15 percent which to me is unacceptable mm-hmm. uh, so i wouldn't recommend that right now um i also think the the sound and whatnot isn't there but if tax can fix that if they can address those issues then then that's great Cool. What about, uh, are there smart trainers below that price point that you would recommend? Yeah, so once you get below that, you're usually talking wheel-on trainers. And so you're talking something like the Kicker Snap, uh, the Cyclops Magnets, uh, Magnet, Magnets, Magnus uh, series, the uh, so M1, M2, I think as they call it now. Uh, and then Elite has a, they've had in the past the Rampa. And then here at uh, Eurobike, they announced the 2.0, um, which it looks, looks cool. It looks cool. It looks like a little toaster. I've, nick- I've nicknamed it the toaster. <laughs> it does yeah. look like a toaster. <laughs> looks like a yeah. toaster. So uh, I'm going to have a lot of fun on that in my review. But uh, so the, the toaster, I was impressed actually. So I, I rode it for the first time just yesterday. I'd seen it this past summer, but didn't have a chance to ride kind of the final feel. I was really impressed. The road feel on that was surprisingly good for, a, I think it's a 549 or 599 trainer um, at that price point. So I'm looking forward to testing that a bit more. Uh, no one else has refreshed their low-end trainers this year. Like, it's all, your bike this year is all about expensive stuff, I guess. And so, I, they could have something on their hands with that little toaster. What about uh, non-smart trainers, like uh, ones that don't have resistance control? Which one would you recommend? That's a tougher game. I, I, haven't, I haven't played as much with that in the last couple of years because everyone's mm-hmm. kind of just going towards that. Right. So, um, you know, I think, like, I play a little bit some of the roller stuff, like from Inside Ride and whatnot, as an as example. Even, but even that's still smart-controlled. Uh, yeah, some everything higher is, end. yeah. So, yeah. I wrote I, uh, the new rollers from Elite. I can't remember the name of them today, but, uh, yeah, smart. The resi- Neuros, yeah. Smart control. Yep. They're great. Yeah, yeah, they work well. Uh, cool. Okay, so uh, are there any trainers that you would specifically recommend for a triathlete over another, or is it all the same? I think it's all the same. I think, yeah. you know, if you're, it depends a little bit on what your workouts are. Um, but I think these days they're mostly the same. Yeah, you've got some advantages with something like the hammer for slightly better erg mode uh, control and whatnot. But, uh, you know, most people aren't, aren't. Like, I think the three of us noticed that because we have so many trainers that are accessible to us that we're like, oh, yeah, the hammer did that in slightly better time. Like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. realistically, like, uh, most people aren't going to notice the difference between those two. Right. Uh, on to power meters. Uh, is there a specific power meter that you recommend to somebody. Which ones do you recommend? Yep. Yeah, so I would say I recommend the ones I use the most. So for me personally in my testing, what I use as baseline power meters are on the pedal side, I use Favera Asiomo and Garmin Vector 3 pedals. Mm-hmm. I know Garmin had a rough go of things with the Vector 3s initially with some hardware stuff. I think that's behind us at this point. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't have any problems with that. And I'm still using my Vector 3s with the original caps and all that kind of stuff. So 
they're on the bike again. That's precarious above you. Um, and but Faveros, you almost <laughs> we can't nail this home enough. Yeah. <laughs> it genuinely is above my head with two jackets yep. hanging from it. <laughs> yep. uh. It's all squished in the RV. Yeah. Uh, by the, this isn't actually my RV. I'm just renting it for the week. So <laughs> I'm just true. Yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. way cheaper to come down and rent an RV and your bike than it is to stay around here and commute. And I'm only 100 meters away from the hall. It's, yeah. it's awesome. We, we've seen uh, uh, tons of folks at our office actually have have picked up the vectors and had great results with them. So uh, yep. yeah, yeah. So the vectors, uh, also the Favero Asioma. Favero, for those that aren't familiar, is an Italian company. They came on the scene, I think, four or five years ago with their B-Pro pedals at the time. And everyone was like, who is this random? Like, they make like light bulbs or something. Like, this company has nothing <laughs> to do with cycling power meters. <laughs> yeah. They come on the scene, they make an astoundingly accurate power meter. And they've been, I would say, they've been pushing the industry forward in terms of accuracy and independent testing and all that kind of stuff um, and features. And their new Asioma pedals, not new, I guess, they've been out a year or something like that. Uh, they refreshed them a little bit this summer with a couple minor things, but they've been every six months adding new features to it. And the price point is lower than everyone else. They've gotten a great price point, so I have zero problems recommending those as well. Um, if we shift away from pedals, uh, crank set wise, I like, like right now, my bike has a Quark D0. Um, it's just working pretty well for me. Uh, the stages are working fairly well for me for the most part, depending on which crank set you're using. Uh, there's some issues again with some of the Shimano right-sided uh, crank sets in a dual-sided configuration. You can look up all that on the internet. Uh, Shane Miller, GP Llama, has a huge long mm-hmm. post detailing some of the challenges that aren't just Shimano power meters, but Shimano-based power meters uh, in the last couple of revisions around that. So Quark D0 for me is working great. Um, and then I also use a PowerTap hub, which, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, the PowerTap hub is sort of, you know, back history sort of thing. But it's by most people in the power industry considered one of the most accurate units out there. Uh, it's used in most aerodynamic testing, for example. Um, it's a tank. It's a beast. It just, it's always there. And more importantly, it's really, really cheap. Um, yeah. Like you can get incredible deals on power tap hubs. And if you don't need to build it into a, a special race wheel or anything like that, like if you just want a good solid training wheel um, or put in whatever you want. Like it's that, the wheel set that's up there right now is like a $2,000 wheel set. So you can, you can get a really expensive wheel set, but that is an astounding, astounding offering. Yeah. Uh, is there, I guess, on the mountain bike side, uh, it'll be interesting to see what SRM does there. Um, but uh, I've ran a uh, cork and a four eyes and I had good luck. One thing I wanted to add, and sorry, this is me chiming in with something here, but um, I had a really hard time fitting a power meter on to my SB150, which is the enduro bike, because the clearance is getting really tough on a lot of these bikes. Uh, and what, at least with four eyes, they said, just see if you can fit a AAA battery in between mm-hmm. the crank and the frame, yep. end up working. And then if you run a bash guide, then that's a, there's a whole other problem if you're going to run one on drive side. So, um, yeah. so mountain biking is a little complex. Is there any, um, I guess, outside uh-huh. of the power meter side of things? Um, I want to talk about head units and watches really quick. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, like watches are traditionally, and you do a ton of watch reviews on your website, they're traditionally like the, the triathlete's choice because yep. they can take it with them through all three sports. Um, have you seen a shift to see more people using them, more cyclists in general? I feel like I have, but it could totally be my narrow perspective because I'm one of those people. I think so, yeah. I think we're seeing more cyclists use them. I don't know if they're necessarily using them as their primary GPS device, but I think they're realizing it's part of their greater like GPS ecosystem, if they will. Or they're, like If they're going to get a watch, they're like, well, I might as well get a a Garmin watch to complement my Garmin head unit because now it's all part of one big thing. My metrics go back and forth. If I do happen to go for a run or, you know, God forbid, somehow end up swimming, then in that case, like, 
you can be all one thing. But I mean, yeah. some people are using it for navigation. You know, for me personally, I don't find using a watch super great on a bike because you just can't see it in most cases. Right. Uh, you can you wear it inside your wrist and stuff, but um, I prefer just having a dedicated head unit out there. Which watch would you recommend for triathletes? I think for triathletes uh, these days, you know, the vast majority of people are kind of end up in that Garmin camp, and there are different price points. Whether you want something more swanky and expensive, it could be like a Phoenix series watch, or if you want something that's uh, barely a little bit cheaper, I guess you could be like the uh, the nine forty five or the nine thirty five, or all the way down to like the seven thirty five XT, which you know has been a couple years old now, but it's a solid watch. Uh, by the same token, Sunto and Polar are making some good watches as well, uh, so. Sunto has their Sunto 5 as a, as a great option for people, uh, triathletes in particular, uh, and then Polar has their Vantage series. And I think Polar's Vantage M is a really good option because it's like, 279 bucks. It's a great like introductory tri watch, and if you're trying to get into triathlon, you're not really sure what you need. To me, that's a that's an awesome awesome option. That Garmin doesn't have anything at that price point. Which head unit would you recommend for cyclists? Yeah, for for myself, well, I tend to primarily use is the Edge 530 from Garmin. Um, uh, the Edge 830 is the exact same thing with a touchscreen, but you pay 100 bucks more. Um, <laughs> it's literally the same thing. Uh, there's a couple minor, like, nuanced navigational differences there, but they're almost identical. Uh, the Wahoo Roam is not too bad either at, at 379 uh, I, I've kind of said pretty publicly I think the Wahoo Roam is overpriced for the price point at that at that point, uh, considering what you get at the 530 at the 299 uh, you know, some people would say, like, the setup process on the Roam is easier, and I would agree with that for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the usability is a little bit easier on the Roam. But I think uh, from a navigational standpoint and whatnot, it's just way deeper. And some of the mountain biking stuff that you get on the, the Edge 530 and 830, for example, is just super, super deep. Yeah, I haven't used that. I need to track my airtime. I mean, like, yeah. quantify my send. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't want to quantify my send or airtime because, <laughs> like, I, it, was, uh, it wasn't ideal. It was, when I was shooting some of the review stuff for that, um, I was with, with, uh, Des of Desfit and he does a lot of mountain biking and, uh, I had like some metrics and I had like a couple pages of, of metrics of the mountain bike, you know, all the jump time stuff and, and all that stuff. And I'm looking, I'm like, this doesn't really look super impressive in my reviews. <laughs> and then he comes out with a video where he's like testing to see how far he can jump and how accurate it is. And he like, in this, in this video that he has, he's put out these flags all the way down this huge jump. He's got some massive airtime and oh. trying to measure it and, and see how accurate it is and everything. And I'm That's like, cool. jump time. 0.3 seconds and I'm like well <laughs> maybe I won't show my <laughs> we were just doing it with Lee McCormick and I felt like I was so high and they hit a picture and I swear you could not like I felt like I was off the air but you really it didn't look like I was <laughs> like an inch yep. yeah yeah oh yeah the, it's it felt crazy. scary though yeah yep. I'm with you <laughs> yeah yeah that's how it goes uh so future talk really quick yep. here so I've seen a lot of brands like integrating stuff like we're walking the floors right now I think there may be two bicycles in the whole place that are not an e-bike uh, but oh, they're so probably a battery's so going to get thrown on there real soon, probably. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a ton of them, but they all have like integrated their own brand head units, that sort yep. of stuff. Do you see all of this stuff being integrated and everyone taking it in house? Like, will Specialized have their own head unit? I mean, they already have their own power meter. Yeah. Um, is that the direction it's going, or are we going to have Garmin head units on our bikes moving forward with all these different companies making the power meters? Do you think, think it's going to be consolidated or not? Yeah. So I think it depends a little bit on the, on the particular topic area. So I think power meters will become every brand has their own, and they're OEM'd, and eventually Shimano will figure out how to make a power meter. When they do, um, I mean, like make an accurate one. They have the one now on uh, out there, but it's it's widely considered the most inaccurate power meter in the industry, and um, the price point isn't there that it makes sense, but there will be a day where Shimano will make an accurate power meter and it'll be on every one of their series of, of crank arm sets 
and the rest of power industry will largely go away. And that, that day isn't that far off. And if you ask anyone in the industry, that's the expectation. That's why companies like Four Eyes have bought Stack and making you know trainers there. That's why other companies are diversifying. That's why Stages is making bikes and head units because they know that day will come where their products are no longer needed. Um, on the flip side, for things like head units, that's a, head units are really, really tough. Bike computers are astoundingly tough to make, and we've seen a lot of companies try, and realistically, the only one that's gotten close enough to challenging Garmin is Wahoo. Um, at the budget end, you've got Lazine that's made some good progress, mm-hmm. um, and Sigma at kind of the higher end has dipped their toe in as well, but the feature set that Garmin has and how fast they're innovating is painful for other companies to try to match, uh, mm-hmm. and so I don't think we'll see many companies do that, except when you're talking more kind of um, generic bikes for just, you know, around town type use. Like we've mm-hmm. got a uh, an e-cargo bike for us because living in Amsterdam, that's a thing to do. And so yeah. it's got <laughs> it's got its head unit on there that's just part of the head unit and that is what it is, right? And I don't yeah. I don't think about it. It's just kind of, that's part of that whole, that bike. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the, the final thing that, that we want to talk about is spin bikes versus trainers. Do you think that we're going to see, like, are we going to be doing this podcast in three years and just talking about spin bikes instead of trainers? I'm well, not that branded. <laughs> yeah, watch out for spin bike. Indoor bikes. Thing. Oh, yeah. Yes. Indoor bikes. Forgive me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I believe the, good, the lawyer just knocked on the, yeah. just knocked <laughs> the door. Hello, yeah. it's just a spinning incorporated. <laughs> yeah. <we don't> <laughs> um, yeah, indoor bikes. I indoor bikes, say. yes. Yep. Uh, so, uh, and it's funny, actually, even that is a, a nuanced thing. I was talking to Stages, and they have indoor bikes. So, Stages makes, um, obviously, power meters, as most people know, but they also make indoor bikes for tons of brands, you know, Equinox and Lifetime Fitness, like all these, they are the, probably the number one maker of indoor bikes in the world. Um, and cool. even if they don't have the name on it, they probably make that bike. And so for them though, announcing their new indoor bike here, they have to differentiate it between indoor bikes for like gym type usage and indoor bikes that are designed to match a road bike um, or a an outdoor bike, right? Because there's kind of two different yeah. setups and feels and all that kind of stuff. So I think that portion of the market, so you're, you're basically talking about people that aren't familiar. Um, at your bike this year, there's a ton of folks or a ton of companies have announced indoor bikes that are designed to replace your trainer. So the Wahoo Kicker bike, the Stages bike, uh, the Watt bike Adam now announced for US availability. It's been around a couple of years now. Uh, uh, True Kinetics. Um, Elite still has that Fiora Pista. Elite thing. has the, the Crazy Horse. The yeah. tax one. Um, it's reduced in price, so it's got a lot cheaper now. Oh, really? It's only 12 grand. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> and then uh, Tax, yeah. Tax the Tax Bike. Yeah. Tax Bike as well. So all these bikes are out there. They're getting, they're starting to ship finally. Um, so in some ways, it's like the fall of, not the fall, like kind of downfall, but like the, <laughs> the fall of 2019 of, of bikes. Um, I think they will. F- they have a place. People will buy them. Uh, the fact that you know, if we look at all Peloton's uh, metrics, especially within their with the S one that just came out in the last uh, couple weeks around their their financials as they go to IPO, people want to have a solution in their house that they just jump on and works. And having ridden all these bikes and having most of these bikes uh, in the studio, it's nice. Like the whole idea that I just jump on the bike, I don't just mess with anything. It just works. It's there. Is super appealing. Uh, I think it's more appealing in some ways to someone that's in that Peloton uh, consumer group necessarily than it is maybe for people that are uh, like us that want to fidget with their bikes and, and don't mind doing that. Uh, but they're really good bikes. Uh, I think the challenge is just the price point. You know, right now the Wahoo bike is thirty five hundred bucks. The tax bike is thirty two hundred bucks. The you work your way down twenty eight ish, twenty six, twenty eight for stages, twenty five for Wahoo bike Adam. Uh, SRM at 5,000. Um, so that's that's going to limit that market a bit. Um, but I think like just like we saw, I remember if you go back 
seven, eight years ago, the the CompuTrainer, you know, used to be 1600 or 1649, right? Mm-hmm. And nowadays the functionality in a CompuTrainer is at a $599 price point. Like that's, that's the same thing's going to happen with indoor bikes when yeah. people figure out quality and shipping and logistics. Um, but for now it's going to stay expensive. Interesting stuff. Do you have anything else, mate? I do not. Cool. That this was is like the buying guide, Christmas buying guide. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> super informative. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, uh, no we problem. appreciate it. Uh, you can go to dcrainmaker.com. You can go to YouTube and check them out there. You can yep. check them out on Instagram, basically anywhere. Search yep. DC Rainmaker and you can <laughs> find it. Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. No, I appreciate the time and you guys making it out to the RV despite it like hurricaning outside right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll be a fast run back in the rain. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. And if you guys have questions and you're listening to this, you can head over to DC Rainmaker and talk to him there. Um, if you have questions about how to become a faster cyclist, of course, go to trainerroad.com or trainerroad.com slash podcast and submit that question. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks.